Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumb Cast. In this, the high noon of season five, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on every goddamn page of MT2, the Weird Weird West, the second in a trio of time travel adventures for TSR's Marvel Superheroes RPG. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. The Weird Weird West was written by Ray Winninger and published in 1989 by TSR. Today we're discussing pages 62 and 63 of The Weird Weird West. This is highly unorthodox. The whole concept of the podcast is that I cover one page of a book every day. Now, from time to time, I might take two days to cover a page. I've done that this season in cases where there's a big reveal in the plot, and so I need a part two to go back and talk about all the things I couldn't talk about up to that point. And then other times, I simply won't shut up. And so I talk too long and I have to split it into two parts. What I haven't done, to the best of my recollection, is cover two pages in one episode in the past. I'm doing it today because I've got two dumbest things to talk about that are intrinsically linked, and they happen to be present on two adjacent pages, so this just seemed like the way to do it. Also, one of these pages has almost nothing on it. We're in the Western Heroes section, and on page 62, we're wrapping up the entry for Texas Twister. As you'll know if you listened to last episode, I don't like Texas Twister. He's not the top of my hate list, you know, in a book with Lincoln Slade and the borderline offensive Red Wolf and Shooting Star, who is obnoxious and also might not exist. It's pretty stiff competition here for my least favorite character, but in his own small way, he's awful, and there's not much to him. He's some loser who got Cyclone powers, and he decided to try to make a name for himself, get, I don't know, rich, famous, something, whatever came to hand, and, uh... Nothing really did. Everything kind of fell through. Texas Twister. He doesn't even have an involved backstory like Kid Colt. Kid Colt's origin isn't terribly exciting, but you can't accuse it of not being detailed. Lots of things happened, should you care to read them. But because there isn't really much to say about Texas Twister, his history section is pretty short. It concludes on this page, and the rest of the page is white space. It's a ton of white space. Like, altogether, maybe two and a quarter columns of white space on this three-column page. You normally wouldn't see this much white space except, like, on the last page of a book. And in fact, the first few times I went through this PDF as I was preparing this season, I forgot that Two-Gun Kid was in it. He's on the next page, but I would always think I was at the end of the book as I was skimming through, because this looks like it must be the last page of a book, because how would anyone dare, (laughs) in the middle of a book, to put in a page that's like one and a half paragraphs of text, and then the rest of it is just blank. And then the book just goes on next page. I mean, you might do that at the end of a chapter in a novel or something like that. Although honestly, some authors abuse this privilege. I've definitely read books where I felt like this book is one third less thick without all these little dangling sentences followed by an entire page of white space at the end of chapters. And I do find that annoying. Here in this rule book, it's unexpected, especially because throughout, like we've seen lots of character write-ups. We had a bunch at the beginning of this book And when one is done, it just runs right on to the next one. Two characters can share a page. I mean, Doctor Doom shares a page with Sandman and Mysterio. If we've got Doctor Doom hot bunking with Sandman and Mysterio, Texas Twister does not need his own suite. This isn't even about that anyway. This is about filler. That is the dumbest thing on page 62. This white space, this is not an isolated situation. Throughout this section, an entry ends, and then there's a ton of white space before the next one. Everybody gets their own page two, in many cases with barely anything on it, like it's it's rarely this egregious where it's like virtually an entire white page, but there's always a bunch of white space. And this was the thing that was even more bizarre to me. Every character write up in this section, it has a format. It lists the attributes, 
Then there's a background section for like personal information, your name, where you're from. Then there's the known powers section. Then there's a section for additional notes. And this is just like sometimes an inch and a half of white space in the book. I have never known someone to play a role-playing game in this way, where you would play an NPC out of the back of a book and then write little notes down about them in the book, especially for a player character option. Like maybe the judge, if the judge isn't like a collector and just wants to play the game and just feels like I'll go ahead and write in the book. Never will I come this way and fight these cowboys again. I might as well just write next to their stat blocks how many hit points they've got left. But I don't I don't know how a player would use this because doesn't the judge need the book? I guess maybe the judge could use it to write down extra information about these characters. But the author is greatly overestimating me if he thinks I've got like an inch of additional Texas Twister trivia to write in to this book that he didn't already get to. Two pages is plenty. I have nothing to add. I can't even draw a stupid mustache on his face because he already has a stupid mustache on his face. I don't think this additional notes section is for me to use. I think it's filler. I went through and I measured how much white space is just in this section, just the Western heroes section between white space at the end of a character entry and the white space under the useless additional notes section of each character. I went all the way through. So it's everything we've talked about in this section so far, plus the upcoming two page entry for two gun kid. When you add them all up, they amount to about three complete blank pages in this section. This section's only 12 pages long. That's like a quarter of this section is white space. It's a simple complaint. That's the thing on page 62. But if I'm going to throw stones, if I'm going to cast aspersions on a product because it's got too much blank space or because it's got too much filler, it's my general practice to back up that complaint by demonstrating that something more useful, more fun could have been in that space. I mean, I know how it is. I've been to school. Sometimes you got to fill three pages and you've only got two pages worth of things to say and you do what you have to do. It's when there are three pages worth of things to say and you give me two pages blown up to 20 point font. That's when we have a problem. And that brings us to the two gun kid. Page 63 begins the entry for the two gun kid. You can go check out the visual companion on patreon.com slash megadumbcast to see a picture of two gun kid. Or of course you can Google him. It's just that the design is distinctive. Two gun kid is really riding that line between costumed cowboy like Phantom Rider and plain clothes cowboy with flair, like Rawhide Kid. He's got a mask that contributes to the effect. And it's a good thing that the costume is distinctive because the stats definitely are not. Two-Gun Kid has a fighting of excellent, an agility of good, a strength of good, an endurance of excellent, a reason of typical, an intuition of excellent, and a psyche of good, almost identical to all the other gunslingers. He's got a resources of good. He has more money than the other gunslingers. And the reason has to do with his background. Quote, real name, Matt Hawk. Occupation, lawyer. Identity, secret. Legal status, citizen of the U.S. with no criminal record. Place of birth, Boston, Massachusetts. Yes, you heard right. He's from the big city. He's from the east. Is he even allowed to wear a cow print vest? I think that's illegal. Quote, marital status, single, known relatives, none. Base of operations, Tombstone, Texas in the 1870s. He's a lawyer. He's from the east and he's a lawyer. Very different background from the other gunslingers. It sets him apart. And then we get known powers. And you know, all of the gunslingers pretty much share the same superpower, having a gun. There are slight variations among them. The author did his best. Quote, pistols. The two-gun kid carries two Colt 45 caliber revolvers. The Colts hit for eight points of shooting damage, more damage than other people's guns. I believe he has the best guns. Hold six shots each and are made from excellent strength material. The guns have a range of four areas. Two-gun kid can fire both pistols in a single turn, even at separate targets, with no penalty. So this is a slight variation. He doesn't get a bonus to hit with his revolvers like other gunslingers do, but he can fire both of them in the same turn. This actually turns out to be highly useful because even at eight damage, more than the other six guns in the game, he's not doing much to like Crozar and giant dinosaurs, but 
he can still kill them outright with a red result. So if he doesn't mind completely tanking his karma to get the job done, and what lawyer does, he can just take two shots at his foes per turn, doing only a small amount more damage than he would have done with one gun, but giving himself two chances to effectively roll a crit and kill them dead. Also, quote, Lasso. Two-Gun Kid also carries a lasso of good material strength that can be used to grapple targets up to two areas away with a successful agility feat roll. For this alone, I salute the Two-Gun Kid. If I were playing a superhero in this adventure and I knew this guy had a lasso, I would at least ask him to come along and join the party so I could unequip his lasso for myself and then give him the boot. That's how we get the most out of new friends we don't want. Final Fantasy taught me that. The role-playing notes for Two-Gun Kid say, quote, Two-Gun Kid is an intelligent and well-mannered hero with a flair for catching his enemies unaware. Hawk is driven by a strong curiosity and thirst for adventure. Naturally, he has found his trips to the 20th century extremely intriguing and hopes to one day return. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. He is kind of a time traveler himself. He's been to the present a few times. So you can see Two-Gun Kid really stands out. I mean, the stats are the same as other gunslingers, but everything from the costume to the background to the personality to the lasso... Within the constraints of a gunslinger in the system, he's kind of as different as he can be. It's just a shame that he's not really going to get a chance to use that lasso, in all likelihood. I mean, I'm sure he'll lasso a couple of crows are for fun, just for the novelty of having a lasso, but you'd really use the lasso if you wanted to take down a person or creature that you don't really want to hurt. You just need to immobilize them, catch them. But there aren't really any tactical opportunities to do anything like that in this adventure. It's a real shame. I mean, very notably... The lack of anybody who can be effectively interrogated to get useful information is a pretty glaring omission in an adventure where two of your player character options specialize in lasso. And yet the lasso is actually easier to fit in than what I think is the most interesting thing about Two-Gun Kid, the fact that he's a lawyer in his secret identity. That combination offers the possibility for him to face a challenge that requires some lawyering, duck in somewhere, switch into plain clothes, take off the mask, and go present himself as an educated, respectable man from the East get the lawyering done, you know, get access to a prisoner in the jail, maybe even argue for the release of somebody who's been detained, something like that, and then go right back to gunslinging. But sadly, I think it's very unlikely that Two-Gun Kid is going to get to use his lawyer talent. That's the dumbest thing in this page, and it's only one instance of a larger missed opportunity. Throughout both this book and all this in World War II, there are so many characters who have talents that are probably never going to see use, because the adventures are too narrow and cut off options too much to really allow these characters, both player characters and non-player characters, to show off some of their most interesting quirks, some of the facets of themselves that we might not see in combat or in grueling, repetitive trudging through the desert. And it didn't have to be this way. I'm just going to take a quick tour through the various characters that we've seen in the Weird Weird West who have hidden talents that I would have liked to see in play and offer some suggestions about scenes that could be added to this adventure to give these characters a chance to shine. I have to give some credit here, actually. This idea comes to me indirectly from listener and gaming buddy Tom Kohler. He's writing some really cool uh, D&D adventures. I'm recording this episode way in advance, but last I heard as of this recording, he was working on some family-friendly adventure material for 5th edition Ravenloft. And one of the things he mentioned to me about the stuff he's writing is that he's including encounter options for the DM based on what the player character's capabilities are. So if you happen to have a bard in the group who does X, then you can drop in this encounter. I love that approach. And by my count, we've got about three blank pages scattered through just this section of the book. That's enough room for a chapter. So here's some bonus chapters that you could throw in to get some of these lesser used talents into play. Uh, number one, Hawkeye. Default player character for both all this in World War II and the Weird Weird West. And as you know, if you looked at Hawkeye's write-up 
in all this and World War II, uh, which is different from his write-up in the Advanced Judges Guide, Hawkeye has the circus lore talent. How are you going to play through an entire adventure path with a character with the circus lore talent right there on their character sheet and not ever go to a circus? You would have to be a monster not to let this player go to the circus, at least at some point. So, option number one, a little scene to insert in the Weird Weird West. Put a traveling circus on the random overland encounter table. It's an old-timey circus, like one you would find in the Old West. They're leading their convoy, they got some animals in there. They might have been transported from a slightly different time or climate, so you can kind of hit whatever you want, right? They've got their tents all packed up, they're transporting their animals. Maybe they're trying to get out of Dodge, maybe they're trying to get out of this area and all this weirdness and go set up in a new town. Maybe they offer to travel with the characters for a little while. Maybe they've got a little bit of water to share. Maybe they're moving a little faster than the characters normally would or offer some other benefit. But there's just something not quite right about the strongman. The secret is the circus has been co-opted by a futuristic con man and street criminal who's got a force field belt and a little holdout laser pistol stashed on his person. He hijacked the circus and he's forcing them to do as he commands, help him carry around a bunch of food and water and commit whatever cons and crimes he's up to out here in the desert. He's threatened all the circus folk not to say anything. There could be clues you could discover as you're traveling with them over a turn or two, or maybe you never find out. But if you happen to know circus lingo, if you happen to speak Kizarni, if you happen to know what the ringleader is talking about with the strongman looming over his shoulder when he greets you with a hearty hey rube, then you can figure out what's up and save the circus and definitely not be allowed to steal a force field belt. That part's important. So that's an opportunity for Hawkeye to meet up with the circus, say, hey, I used to work at a circus, I love the circus, and then be the one who picks up on the circus clues to solve the circus crime. Another option, Moon Knight. Moon Knight's going to be able to use his driving skill, uh, piloting the time machine maybe, and you know, he's got martial arts and acrobatics and all that, but also he has the financier skill, which gives you a plus one to feet rolls involving money. There's not a lot of opportunity to get involved in a business and high finance in these adventures, and it's a little bit of a shame because... Wonder Man, too, has the businessman skill, which is interchangeable with the financier skill, mechanically. So either of them would know what to do if a business and finance situation came up. Now, that's a little bit harder to work into the Old West than a traveling circus. But what you could do is put another location on the map, a makeshift swap meet or bazaar. Instead of having random Chinese merchants just standing in the desert, hoping somebody walks by, selling food and water with no plausible explanation of how they got it here or how they plan to get it home or how they plan to get themselves home. Instead, have a location where people who have something to trade from all different eras have set up some tents, set up some stands, and they're doing some trading with one another. You could just do a little bullet point list of the different NPCs, where they're from and what they've got to trade. So for example, maybe there's somebody there selling horses. This is a chance to buy some horses, increase your speed, but you need something to trade. Likewise, there could be somebody here with a big wagon full of water that they got from the river that they brought back at great risk to themselves, and now they're selling it for a premium. But what do they want in exchange? Obviously, nobody's money is any good, but that doesn't mean this isn't a business opportunity. Every turn that the party spends here costs them food, costs them water, runs down the timer until the crows are activate the beta bomb. But if you can stay here long enough and make some rolls on your businessman or financier skill, you can figure out how to make a profit here. Trade away some things the group doesn't need for something that they do. And if you've got a cart or a sky cycle or Wonder Man and some bungee cords, he can basically carry anything you can balance on his back. Maybe load up on some things that you don't need, but you're going to be able to trade them at the next general's camp you go to or what have you. You could even maybe help some desperate people here by giving them some initial trading goods and some tips so that they can set up some kind of little stand selling something so they can trade for the food they need to live. 
an interesting encounter, an opportunity to introduce a more buried cast of historical NPCs in a way you can interact with, and Wonder Man gets to go walk into the bazaar and say, hey, did everybody forget? I used to run a business. Let me talk to these people. Let me see what's being traded and what it's being traded for, and I'll find a way to turn what we've got into what we want. I think that would be a rare opportunity for Wonder Man, who, you know, he's got typical reason and kind of a lot of character resources invested in just punching. So being able to do something else, I think, would be refreshing. Next up, an NPC this time, Alexander the Great. He has the swordsmanship and writing skills, but unlike Genghis Khan, we never see him in combat. It would be fun to fight alongside Alexander the Great. So I'm going to suggest slightly shortening the sequence of encounters where you go through Crozar enemy lines after combat has been joined between human and Crozar forces. And in certain encounter first, where there's a scouting party equipped with some kind of a communications gadget, and if they see you, they can signal back to the Crozar base to fortify. You don't want that. So for the heroes to slip past them, the scouts have to be too busy to notice. And so a combination of gunslingers and Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great charge the Crozar scout position, and that way you've got the option. If anybody at the table is more interested in playing Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan than in a gunslinger, they've got the option, and if not, then not. But it would be a nice little reward for getting the generals on your side to be able to play them in a combat. This would also be a great opportunity to make Alexander the Great and the Rawhide Kid kiss. Rawhide Kid seems like Alexander's type, but he's definitely of legal age. So if you want to make Alexander the Great a canon bisexual in your campaign, now is the time. Jump on this opportunity, jump on this gunslinger. Tigra, as I've talked about before, she has the biology talent, but between being a tiger and being in a bikini, it tends to get overlooked. Here's a scene you can add into the Napoleon portion of the adventure. Remember at the end when he asks you to get together five of his men and get a wagon and go to Dodge City and liberate that food and water? And then you got to go try to fight those dinosaurs with Napoleon's useless soldiers. And it says even if you fail, you get a diplomacy point for trying because there is such a strong possibility that you will fail, I think, depending on who you're playing. Instead of that, have Napoleon say... He was counting on food from Dodge City because he had made a deal with somebody else out in the desert, another small group just outside his territory, who said that they could give him bullets that would pierce the hides of the dinosaurs. They said they were going to bring that ammunition as soon as they finished it, and then they and Napoleon's forces could split the provisions once they killed the dinosaurs and liberated the food supply. But they never showed back up with the ammo. Maybe the heroes can go out there and get it from them. So that leads to a brief insert chapter where you've got some future scientists who are transported here from the future, they had been working on special bullets with some kind of biological agent inside that would kill the dinosaurs, so that they would only need some simple firearms to fire the projectiles and some decent marksmen to take down the dinosaurs and get the food and water they needed. But when they were almost finished coming up with that biological agent, there was a dinosaur attack, everyone was scattered or killed. So Tigra can roll her biology, complete their work, she knows her way around the lab, it's advanced biology, but all she's got to do is understand what they were doing and finish the job. Now she's got some dinosaur-killing bullets, and the heroes can help Napoleon liberate Dodge City, and also, maybe they can keep some of this biological agent. The gunslingers should be able to load it into their style of ammo. And Hawkeye could make some custom arrowheads with this biological agent. Bonus, he gets to use his arrowhead construction skill. And now from now on, uh, your dinosaur problems are much easier to solve, which I think would be a great relief. Uh, next up, one of the most glaring ones, Pharaoh John Hobart, the leader of the Hobart gang. We heard all about his skills and hopes and dreams as a con man, card player, crooked gambler, two-bit lowlife, etc. But we never actually got to play cards with him. As I mentioned at the time when we talked about John Hobart, it's very easy to add a scene where you gamble with him. For example, let's say that instead of thinking that Einstein's shack has valuables in it just because, just because John Hobart is a crooked man and he assumes if anybody is protecting a house, it must be because they're hoarding ill-gotten goods in there, as opposed to, you know, living there. 
Instead of that, say that the Hobart gang thinks that there's something valuable inside the shack because when Einstein was gathering pieces for his machine, they ran him down in the desert and mugged him at one point, and he had a Crozar power generator with gold fittings. So now they're sitting on this thing until they're somewhere to sell gold again, and all this dies down, and they're convinced there must be more valuables inside that shack. So after you've defeated or scared off the bandits, you hear the story from Einstein and the gunmen, it's very easy to track the gang back out into the desert so you could follow them back to where they're holed up and Hobart could offer, hey, instead of fighting about this like brutes, why don't we behave like civilized people and play a game of cards? And if you, the honest do-gooders win, then I'll give you that power generator, gold fittings and all. Finally, the character on this page, the reason to do this big ass episode at all, two-gun kid and his law skill. And I have to admit this one is a little bit harder, but here's my idea. Android Clarence Darrow or William Jennings Bryan, it's your game. Rule zero. It is always the judge's decision whether to use Clarence Darrow or William Jennings Bryan. But in either case, have them be one of the androids that Doom brought. Do a final chapter after Time Amok, where most everything that was brought here by the Chronovore goes back where it belongs, but people and things that came here under their own power and time machines do not, which is why the player characters are still here. Doom escapes on his time platform with his henchmen, but before he leaves, he exacts one petty act of vengeance. He remotely programs android Clarence Darrow to attempt to frame the heroes and or the gunslingers for the various crimes that the hooded figures committed in their robes and hoods. Thefts for parts to repair the machines that were damaged during time travel, thefts of provisions to keep everybody fed while Doom was working on the machine, etc, etc. So when the player characters and the gunslingers are on their way back to the player character time machine, they have a bunch of law enforcement of whatever kind, maybe even a posse, right up on them with android Clarence Darrow right there in the mix, pointing at them and saying they're the ones and some combination of the player characters and or the gunslingers are put under arrest, dragged back to Dodge to stand trial in front of a very stressed crowd eager for justice for something while the bullshit that's happened over the past few days. It's an ugly situation, and android Clarence Darrow is doing everything he can to get our heroes sentenced to death. It's a very quick process, there's not a lot of testimony, but a lawyer does get to speak in the player character's defense. And if Two-Gun Kid is in the party, then we just arrange that he's not one of the accused framed individuals or impress upon the group that he really needs to escape he has a secret identity to protect in this era so he can act as the defense lawyer for the player characters at the trial give a little speech roll reason with a bonus from the law talent and maybe you have a little list of things that you could persuade the judge of with a law role and your goal here essentially is to do to clarence darrow bot what you did to twain bot and catch him in an inconsistency reveal that this is a frame job and or fluster him about his identity where he came from and this will cause him to freak out and start trying to tear down the courthouse, at which point you subdue him, you shake hands with the judge, all charges are dropped, and you're off to the time machine with one little extra Old West scene under your belt before the adventure ends. And Two-Gun Kid got to be a lawyer. So there you have it. This was a long one, but it was two pages. We also covered a lot of dumb things throughout both books, so it had to be done. Unlike the author, I wasn't going to let these interesting talents sit here doing nothing through the whole adventure series. I had to get them into the mix, even if it required an android Clarence Darrow or William Jennings Bryan. Join me next time when we finish up with the two-gun kid, finish up with the Western hero section, and learn much too late about a Marvel gunslinger who belongs in this adventure on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact me however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Gmail, Podbean, your favorite podcatcher, etc., etc. 
This episode's theme music, used under Creative Commons license, is Western Firefight 2 by Kula, whose work you can find at Kula.com. That's C-U-L-L-A-H dot com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>